In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, we have a parable which is probably the supreme parable of all the parables. And there is extensive reading that can be done on this parable. And many have commentated that we should not call it the parable of the prodigal son. The reason being is that all of the significant action takes place by the loving father and not so much the son's. And that the real focus isn't on what the son did out there in the foreign country, although all of us have our imaginations, but in fact what happens in and around the father and the father's love. So we may call it the parable of the loving father, the parable of the man who had two sons, or the parable of the lost sons, because as we will see, both are actually lost. This parable was told by Jesus in order to say something to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were murmuring because they didn't like what Jesus was doing. They say, he is welcoming sinners and eating with them. Surely that has to be wrong. Why doesn't he know that that's wrong? And Jesus told three parables back-to-back in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost sons or the loving father. So that's what we have, uh, and that's what we're working with today. Now, it's interesting to note that right after the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says this to the crowd that is listening, the scribes and Pharisees especially, He says, just so, I tell you, after this lost sheep is found, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Interesting, because how can a sheep repent? He follows this statement right after the sheep is found. It's probably a a tongue-in-cheek statement saying there are no righteous people. Everyone needs to repent. We can think of that as well. Now, almost everything I'm going to say from this point on is from someone named Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey just died a couple of years ago, but he is a scholar and a theologian a seminary professor, and he lived in the Middle East for 40 years. And he researched peasant village culture all over the Middle East. In Syria, in Egypt, Cyprus, and in Jerusalem, and other places. And what he would do is he would tell these stories, these parables, to these peasants and get their feedback and their reactions to all of what was being said. And what he found out is that it was very uniform all over these villages and peasant culture all over the Middle East. They all said the same thing. They had the reactions to the same things in the stories. They all had ideas about what was supposed to happen or what was not supposed to happen. Now this is very important. 
because that culture is very much closer to the culture that Jesus spoke into. Because when we look at the scriptures, we just bring our own culture with us because we have no other culture to bring. Because we know no other culture, so we just think, well, this should go here, that should happen, that's not surprising. Well, that's surprising. It's all based on our own culture. So, for the rest of our time together, I'm going to go over a series of points uh, made by Kenneth Bailey and his 40 years of research that have to do with peasant Middle Eastern village life. Well, the first thing he says is that Jesus does not use an oriental patriarch as an image of the father. Because everyone in the Middle East couldn't believe what this father was doing and said no father would act like this. So the loving father is supposed to be different than the patriarchs of peasant and village culture. That's something very important. So, and the father in this parable, of course, is God. So God is not like the patriarchs of old because they would do very different things than the father does in our parable. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that <clears throat> repentance is found by us quickly in this parable. We say, ah, oh, the younger son, he repented and he came back to the father. And that's why it's chosen during Lent, because it's such a great matchup. You can preach on repentance. Get this, for 1,800 years, the Syriac and Arabic translations of what the younger son did has nothing to do with repentance. They said he figured out a way to come back to the village to feed himself, and so he was shrewd, just like the dishonest steward. Remember, he said, oh, I got caught cooking the books, but let's see, I'll just say that you owe my master this much and this much, and he had a whole system to find a way out of the whole thing. That was being shrewd. He wasn't repenting. And in fact, the words that he uses, I have sinned against God, is actually very much just like the quote that Pharaoh says to Moses, and he did not repent. So, we see repentance when it may not be there. There's a change of mind and a strategy, but so repentance is something that we can look at also. He also says this. He says that there is no hint in his extravagant living of immorality. We just assume he's taken the money, he liquidates his estate, he goes off into a far country and it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll for as long as it will last. That's what we think. We just, surely that's what it is. It's just, I mean, just debauchery. Not for them. They don't translate it that way. In fact, the explanation of what he would have done is this. He liquidated the money and he went to a far country he wanted to set himself up as an honorable person. And you get the honor by giving extravagantly to others. 
And so you throw lavish parties and invite people to the party. And when they come to the party, then they owe you, the party giver. Or you give people great gifts. And then, ah, all of a sudden, that person owes me something. And so my honor continues to raise higher and higher. So he was trying to set up himself as a person of honor in another place, they say. But he ran out of money. His venture just, he didn't have enough capital to really get this off the ground. Now, isn't that fascinating? And so, uh, both sons have difficulty with their fathers. Obviously, the younger son did something that was dishonorable and disrespectful to his dad in wanting the money right now. But it was probably even more dishonorable for him to leave the town and the village and the estate of the father. That caused shame and disrespect on the father, his leaving. And so that's an issue. He has a plan to come back, though. And the plan to come back is based on his own hunger. And the plan works like this. I'll go back to my dad and I'll be hired as a servant. And hired servants don't come back into the family. They don't come back to the estate. They actually live in another village and just visit the estate day by day to do the work of a hired servant. That's something very different than coming back as a son. And so the plan was a strategy that was smart because he was hungry. And he came back and he expected a number of things and I want to go over uh, something about what he would have expected. This is just fascinating. This is a direct quote. As the prodigal returned to the village, he expected his father to remain aloof in the house while he made his way through the village. To say the least, he would be subdued by in the process of the crowd in the street. As soon as they discovered the money had been lost among the Gentiles, the kazaza ceremony would be enacted. The son would then be obliged to sit for some time outside the gate of the family home before being allowed to even see the father. Finally, he would be summoned. With the boy already rejected by the village, the father would be very angry, and the boy would be obliged to apologize for everything as he pleaded for job training in the next village. That's how it should have worked. But the amazing thing about the story is, is that the father, who sees the son, the son coming at a great distance, hikes up his robe, and in dishonor and in shame, he runs. The Greek word for run is a foot race. He hasn't run in 40 years because men of his stature don't run, showing their legs in public. But he runs. He runs to greet the son. The reason he runs to greet the son is he has to beat the villagers to the son to give him the honor back. Because there's always village people just hanging around. 
And they don't have anything else to do but to figure out what's going on and to start to gossip about it because that's how village life works. And so he runs ahead, the father runs ahead, the servants run behind him, onlookers say, we're going to get on this train and they go out to get uh, to meet the son. The father kisses the son over and over and over again, says the scriptures. And he is hugged and embraced. The best robe is given to the son, the ring, the symbol of family authority, and sandals. That's what the father says, get all this going, we're going to do the fatted calf. Now, the son has this rehearsed speech. He doesn't even get to finish the speech, but the speech of the son ends, I'm not worthy to be your son. But his plan doesn't work. He has a big decision to make. Is he going to continue with his plan where he's in control and he'll earn money as a hired servant and maybe someday pay it back and then he'll regain his own honor in the village? Or is he going to accept as a gift of grace his sonship back? Because the father, strangely enough, is offering it right then and there. And he does the wise thing. He takes his sonship back and they go back and they begin the feast and the fatted calf is slaughtered and cooked up. Everyone in the village, because they honor that man, is going along with this. This is not customary at all. That boy should be in a lot of trouble. But the father circumvented all of that because of his heart, the heart of love. And that's really chapter one, the love of the father with the younger son. Let's move to chapter two. What about the elder son? Well, someone wrote uh, in a summary I think is really good. The irony is that at the end of the parable, the prodigal has been restored to a right relationship with his father, but the elder brother has become estranged from them both. He refused to share in his father's joy and to accept the return of the prodigal. He shut himself out of the celebration. We do not know the outcome of the story, but countless family relationships have ended over much less. Well, they have the party. People from the village come. The guests are invited. The prominent guests are closer to the host, the father, who is celebrating his son's return. He was dead. Now he's alive. He's restored to the family. Even though he squandered his inheritance, which is one-third of the father's estate, because the first son gets two-thirds Even though he squandered his, he's still back within the family. Now, the older son comes in from the field. He's been in the shade. He's not sweaty from working. He's been in the shade overseeing the people who actually work because that's his status. But he hears the drums beating and he's wondering, hmm, what's going on? He gets closer and realizes there's some sort of party going on. 
There's a young man who's not invited to the party, but everybody in the village comes to the party, but they're just outside. They're not inside because they're not invited, but they're outside just kind of going along with the music and having fun because the whole village knows everything about everybody, and they're all in it together. The older son comes and asks this young man, what's going on? And he says, the son has returned, there's a big party, and he mentions something that in our translation, Kenneth Bailey says, they got that wrong. He says, the son is back safe and sound. But this actual word, every time it's translated in the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, is translated peace. There's shalom between the father and the younger son. And it's already been made. And that's why the older son is so enraged. He's enraged because he didn't get a chance to go meet with the father and say, don't you dare let my younger brother back into this family because he squandered his part and I don't want him spending my part of the estate. You see why he's so upset? It has to do with money. And he does not want him back in in order to start spending up his two-thirds of the estate. And he also shows that he himself sees himself as a servant of the father rather than a son. Because he says, I've been working for you all these years. And you never gave me a party. Somehow, he didn't see himself as a son that could ask his father, can I have a goat party with my friends? Somehow, the elder brother is concerned with what is going on that seems unfair. He accuses the younger brother, of wasting all the money with prostitutes, which in the story is not there. It's something from the elder brother. It's not in the wording earlier in the parable. And he's concerned about the money. Now, the father has already shown great dishonor and taken on the shame and the dishonor by running out to rescue and give the prodigal son his sonship back. Now he is in great dishonor because the elder son at a banquet should be inside the home serving the most prominent guest as a sign of giving them honor. Well, where is the elder son? The guests are wondering. They are shamed because the elder son is not there to do his job. And then... The father has to take on more shame and disrespect and dishonor by leaving his guests and going outside to deal with the elder son. And those symbols, Kenneth Bailey says, the fact that he, the father dishonored himself and took on the shame of the younger and the older brother are in fact symbols of the incarnation and the atonement of Christ. That... The father sent the son to bear the shame and the dishonor of others. So he goes out and the father pleads with the elder son 
to come into the party. And he gets this discussion. He's dishonored once again because the son doesn't say, Oh, Father, he says, Listen. Yet, the loving father continues to just show loving kindness to his son. And he says, Everything I have is yours, and I'm with you always. And then the parable ends. The son, the elder son, is outside the feast. We don't know what's going to happen. Will he finally enter the feast or not? And again, the irony is is that the prodigal received his sonship by grace, by simply accepting it and receiving it, and the elder son is outside still thinking that he is a servant and not a son. So I hope that these insights from these Middle Eastern peasants has just put some things in our structure, in our mind, to help us understand this a little better. Again, the real action is the father. The father is doing things that no father would be thought to be doing. Because God is our heavenly father, often not like our regular father. And that's the point Jesus is making God the Father is like this, full of mercy and compassion and loving kindness and forgiveness. So, come and receive the sonship. Receive being a son and daughter of God. Enter into the family of God and receive that love and that forgiveness. And don't be like the older brother who in his pride and in his own mind is stuck in a sense of servanthood and not sonship. So when we tie this with what Paul tells us and reminds us in our epistle, I'll just finish with this because this has gone on too long. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we, that's us, are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Amen.